and this relates a little bit to what both Simon and Rolando were saying. Um, Simon was talking about person-centered care. And unless we incorporate sex, which is biology, DNA, physiology, immunology, as well as gender, which are sociocultural factors, um, we're really not practicing person-centered care. ISN would like to acknowledge Trevere for their support of this special WCN 21 series of the ISN Global Kids Care Podcast. everybody. Uh, this is Roberto Pequa Filho. I'm a nephrologist and I am the ISN Education Working Group co-chair. I'm also hosting this podcast episodes. I think we are on the eight or nine episodes and usually I, I have Smita Singh, a nephrology from the UK, joining me co-hosting the episode. But uh, today I have the pleasure of having my friend Arvind Conchivaran, who is the at ISN Education Chair and the WCN Social Media Team Co-Lead. Uh, Arvin, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here hosting this with me today. Thank you, Roberto. It's an honor. So I think uh, we're going to start off this uh, podcast uh, by introducing the speakers. I must say that this is the uh, Global Kidney Care WCN Series podcast, and this is a special WCN podcast uh, that's coming to you from the International Society of Nephrology. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be associated with uh, these folks here. Uh, we have four speakers who will be speaking at the World Congress of Nephrology. The first speaker. Uh, would be Dr. Simon Davis. He is a consultant nephrologist at the University Hospital of North Midlands and professor of nephrology and dialysis medicine and director of the Institute for Applied Clinical Sciences at the Keele University. His principal research interests are in peritoneal dialysis and the evaluation of fluid status in advanced kidney failure. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you very much for having me, Arvind. Thank you. The next person I'd like to introduce to you is uh, Dr. Sophia Ahmed. Uh, she will be our plenary speaker. She is a professor in the Department of Medicine at the Cummings School of uh, Medicine at the University of Calgary in uh, uh, Canada. Uh, she is a 2020 recipient of the ASN Distinguished uh, Mentor Award. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Sophia Ahmed. Thank you. I'm truly delighted to be here. Excellent. Uh, the next speaker... Uh, I'm going to introduce to you is uh, Dr. Rolando Claude Del Granado. He is a good friend of mine. He is uh, based in Cochabamba in uh, Bolivia. He's the head of the Division of Nephrology at the Hospital Obrero, number two CNS there. He's also the chair, past chair of the ISN Young Nephrologist Committee. Welcome, Rolando, to this podcast. Thank you, Arvin. It's a pleasure to be again with uh, friends and and professors of the YNC. And last but not least, Dr. Duama Adu. He is a honorary consultant nephrologist uh, in the teaching hospital Accra, Ghana. He is also a co-investigator of the uh, H3 Africa. This is basically a, a sort of a consortium of uh, five African nations uh, which is looking at uh, the genetic makeup of kidney disease in Africa. Welcome, Dr. Adu. Thank, thank you very much, Arvind, for the very kind words. Pleasure to be here. 
Excellent. Thank you. So I'm going to move back to Simon to ask him about his uh, topic uh, that he'll be speaking on at the conference at the World Congress of Nephrology. Simon, you're going to speak on uh, peritoneal dialysis. That is your forte. Uh, what, what, what are you going to speak on uh, during the World Congress? Thank you, Arvind. Well, I, I'm speaking on a couple of small topics in a day of uh, peritoneal dialysis, um, the whole day devoted to PD. It's a course, really. It's a pre. It's a pre. It's a pre-congress course um, to to update people on all aspects of PD. And I was lucky enough to be asked, along with Martin Wilkie and Sharon Nassim, to to put this day together. So perhaps just say a little bit about the whole day before I say specifically about what I'm doing. Um, it's a day where we're trying to really bring to the uh, delegates really the most up-to-date aspects of PD um, across the board, ranging from uh, the first session, which is about setting up PD, some some issues around how to how to think or rethink um, about how we. Uh, prescribed dialysis in PD. Uh, then there's a middle section which is devoted to, to uh, keeping people on PD, really, managing membrane function, fluid status, um, uh, and, and looking at technique failure. And then the last session, uh, we've um, felt very important that we uh, thought about PD in the context of the recent uh, COVID crisis. Um, and because of that, we've, 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 we've included speakers talking about remote monitoring uh, in Colombia, for example, uh, how PD is managed in times of crisis or how valuable it can be in times of crisis from Turkey uh, and the use of PD uh, to treat COVID patients um, uh, from a number of different places around the world. So that's just an overview of the sort of day that we, we've got for you. I'm happy to take questions on any of that, really. Um, but my own particular lectures are uh, um, around uh, prescription of PD. Um, and in, in that area, I'm really focusing on the recent PD or ISPD guidelines that came out last year. Um, uh, these are an important set of guidelines because they really fundamentally changed the approach to PD prescription. Um, uh, and you know, they're, they're, this, it's really a switch away from uh, this obsession we've had for far too long uh, in the dialysis community with sort of metrics around dialysis measurement. Uh, and it moves much more towards a person-centered approach to dialysis uh, prescription. So I'll be talking a bit about what we mean by person-centered care um, uh, and what that means for PD. Um, uh, so, for example, um, you know, what we measure. So I just say a little bit more about, about person-centered PD, because really it's a, it's, a, it's a desire to move away from target-driven therapy, basically. Um, so the idea instead is to go for goal-directed therapy. So uh, this is about shared decision-making, sitting down with your patient and their family and really considering what's really important for that individual, what are the goals you want to set, um, which will vary considerably in different geographies, jurisdictions and, and uh, other settings, uh, and then really designing a dialysis therapy that works around that so that you actually get the real benefits of a home dialysis therapy translating to, to, to the patient experience of care. 
Um, so it's 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 quite a big change. You know, we've we haven't exactly completely ditched KTO for me, but we've more or less got rid of it. Uh, and I'm sure that some will be pleased about that. Um, we there's also emphasis on on, on but perhaps a bit more emphasis on fluid management than there was, uh, which I think is one of the things which I'm keen on. Um, but it's also, for example, uh, focusing on on using metrics like patient reported outcomes. Some of you may be familiar with the recent PD Song uh, initiative, which has been very, very informative, I think, in terms of really making us think hard about what's important for patients. Um, it's not just survival, it's not just technique survival, although these things are still important, of course. But, you know, um, quality of life, um, particularly life participation, seems to be an important, important issue for PD patients. So just prescribing your dialysis so they can participate in the things that they really want to do uh, is, a, is a key to that. I guess, uh, Simon, this is um, the, the next challenge here um, after the initiative of putting together the guidelines and ISPD has been traditionally very much involved in this, will be really trying to implement it globally. What are the, the key points that you see as challenging in terms of implementation? Well, I think um, there's a number of different sorts of challenge. Um, I mean, they're, they're quite different, for example, in the US compared to, to, to China, for example. Um, uh, in, in the US, actually, we, we, need, we need to really get people uh, less addicted to KTA over V and using that as the only metric that, that, that is described as a quality dialysis treatment. Uh, so there, I think it's a it's a sort of cultural change that needs to happen, um, and uh, I think the challenges there are. But people say, well, okay, if you don't have something like KTOV to measure, what do you measure as a metric which says there's good quality treatment? Um, and you know, there I think the challenge is, is to say, well, just because you don't measure, just because you don't have a target for KTOV, which is the same for everybody, it doesn't mean you shouldn't measure it. But actually, you should. In, in, interpret it intelligently um, and and uh, understand why you might then have exceptions to, to, to what might be an otherwise previous previous target. Um, so this, that's a sort of cultural change I think that happens. Um, I think in the in the case if you if you go to other parts of the world, um, let me give an example of Thailand, which I'm 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 quite knowledgeable about because Thailand is um, I'm pleased to say a, a member of the PDOPS consortium. Um, for them, I think actually it's pretty clear that the real challenges um, uh, are uh, pre-dialysis care, actually. Um, I think you can see quite clearly from the data that their technique survival is quite good. Interestingly, they have almost too high KT over Vs in, in, <laughs> in Thailand. You can see that they're over-dialyzing people. Um, whereas actually what they should be doing is thinking more, I think, about uh, pre-dialysis preparation mm. um, and, and, and pre-dialysis care. So there's some real challenges there, actually. Um, but, but they've done a fantastic job in that country um, rolling out the therapy. Right. What about uh, PD first as a plan? Now, you have Hong Kong, Thailand. These countries have PD first as an option. Uh, many countries don't, and most of us depend on hemodialysis as the first option. In fact, some of us actually don't offer the patient the choice. Uh, what do you have to say about that? 
So the, that that is an issue which will, I think, be covered in, in some extent in, by Martin Wilkie in the first talk of the day, um, just to, to signpost that. Um, and you know, the fact is that the, the PD first therapy, where it's been done properly, um, and I'm thinking of Thailand and, and Hong Kong, um, uh, perhaps less so now in Mexico, but it was done originally in Mexico. Where it's been done properly by those countries, it was actually an extremely successful approach. Uh, and indeed, both of those countries, particularly Hong Kong, still has a high proportion of patients going on to PD with very good outcomes indeed. Um, having said that, um, I, I, I don't personally sign up to, to, a, to, a, to, a, to an approach uh, in every country which says PD first. Um, I think it's got to be very carefully thought through. Um, uh, you've got to discuss it with the policymakers. And the Thailand example is very good for this. You know, they, 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 they started with health economics of this and they, they got a proper study done before they set up the program in, in, in Thailand uh, and really worked out the cost benefits of doing that and showed quite clearly that they would be able to deliver more dialysis to more people if they adopted a PD first policy uh, for the uninsured patients. So you can, you can definitely do it. Um, but I, but I'm not sure that it should be done without a really strong hand with government um, involved. I think there really need to be clear um, decisions made at a policy level, um, and then behind that, there needs to follow in all the, what's necessary to go with that. So, for example, you need backup hemodialysis, as you've suggested. Um, you also need to have a supply of PD solutions which are cost-effectively delivered. Uh, and that is the, the biggest, perhaps the biggest challenge in many countries still at the moment, is that access to, to, to PD fluid at a, at a, at a uh, uh, competitive and sensible price is still not possible. That's, that's really great to hear, Simon. Let's, let's shift gears um, to Rolando, and we might circle back to some of the PD issues that might be related to the talk he's giving. So, Rolando, um, you have a you have a big big task here, a lot of ground to cover, right? So, what 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 are your plans and the highlights for your presentation um, in the coming week? Yeah, Roberto, uh, I have two two presentations that are I think are related. Uh, one is about uh, tropical AKI. And uh, in that, uh, that uh, lecture, I will cover uh, the basics of the most common causes of AKI in, in tropical countries like uh, uh, infections like dengue, malaria, uh, acute diarrhea, uh, the use of herbal medicine that has become a big issue and a big problem in, in low and low middle income countries, uh, uh, venoms and uh, pregnancy related AKI. And uh, I'm going to focus more uh, on prevention, and that's uh, an important issue. And that's uh, also coupled with another lecture uh, that uh, will be presented during um, uh, World Congress of, uh, of Nephrology uh, related to the Zero by 25 initiative. Uh, that uh, that uh, initiative really helped us to improve the, the early identification of patients at risk of uh, AKI and uh, early identification with patients with AKI. And using uh, uh, a simple score, uh, uh, score system, 
uh, uh, simple point of care tools like these uh, devices that we tested uh, uh, that could uh, bring uh, a serum creatinine value in 30 seconds. We were able to identify patients at risk or with AKI and uh, use uh, a protocol-based approach for treat uh, those uh, patients. Uh, the second lecture I'm gonna give is about the, the treatment of uh, severe AKI uh, with uh, renal replacement therapies in uh, low and low middle income countries. And uh, that uh, again couples uh, very well with uh, what we have learned with the zero by 25 uh, initiative. Uh, it's part of the five R's. And we have learned also uh, that we could adapt therapies and make recommendations that are uh, very useful for uh, the low and low middle income countries that are yet that are not usually found in, in several consensus uh, uh, expert uh, opinion etc so uh, that's one of the, of the things we we will able to do uh, we gather a group of experts and in, in beard experts in uh, uh, peritoneal dialysis experts in crt in the in the region and uh, uh, make some recommendations about uh, that uh, in in, the, in a couple of papers that we we publish, because the, the the context of what we live in the in in low and low in, income countries is uh, quite different from what uh, what they have in upper middle or or high income income countries. So uh, we have adapted therapies, for example, with the shortest of uh, CRT devices. Uh, we have adapted the use of those devices using one device for treating two to three patients per day uh, using in a, uh, in a uh, intermittent renal replacement therapy, prolonged uh, type of, of therapy, uh, making recommendations about the use of uh, peritoneal uh, dialysis, uh, etc. And uh, uh, also uh, focusing on prevention. And also I'm gonna present some data about our uh, Latin American uh, registry about AKI and COVID-19, but we have interesting data about that. I guess I guess something interesting that happened, and, and I mean, moving from, you know, snakes and environment factors and venoms is, is the fact that, you know, the experiencing low resource setting, settings has, has proven to be quite interesting to developed countries in the COVID crisis. I, I, I learned that, for instance, in the UK during the peak of the pandemic and the lack of resources, you know, the application of PD and AKI was something that was important. Also happened in New York during the, you know, the uh, peak of the crisis that, you know, US doctors who never uh, really use PD and AKI uh, reached out to you guys who has experience to to really learn on how to do it. Um, uh, th are you are you planning on on uh, approaching that during your talk, or can you share some of what you learned in the last few months in terms of uh, you know the developing world supporting the developed world in terms of management AKI in uh, in, in low resource settings? Yeah, this is an interesting point you you make, and and that's true. We have a uh increase the use of PD in, uh, for, uh, for treating uh, AKI in most of the, of the hospitals. However, uh, one of the things we found in our, in our registry that's gonna be presented in, a, in, a, in an abstract during the, the WCN is that uh, uh, even though uh, PD is an extremely useful 
uh, tool for treating patients with severe AKI is this standard use. And, uh, and uh, uh, for example, in this, uh, in this uh, uh, abstract that we are presenting, uh, PD was the least uh, the type of renal replacement therapy that was uh, was used. Uh, and I think that's maybe because most of the data we, we got are from uh, uh, hospitals that are located in uh, uh, suburban or urban areas that are uh, 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 university hospitals and, and the people who respond to the to the to the survey. But as you said, PD is an ex extremely useful tool that uh, should be used and could be used more frequently to treat those, those patients. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, in, in our center, uh, we have uh, we have a PD. We have the, the capacity to to provide PD, but it's uh, it's underused. And now with the pandemic, with the lack of uh, of uh, portable osmosis. Uh, uh, we have only, for example, two CRT uh, uh, machine devices uh, for uh, for the for the patients. We realize that PD is a, a, an extremely useful tool, and uh, we are uh, we ask for uh, for uh, uh, devices to to be able to provide automated automated peritoneal dialysis to these to these patients. So uh, that's one of the things uh, that uh, we learned with the, with the pandemic that. We uh, should use more PD, and PD is an extremely useful tool in low resource settings. Right. We are going to shift gears again and uh, go to Sophia. Sophia, your talk is going to be very interesting. Sex and gender in nephrology, proper care or propaganda. What are you going to talk about? Um, so I'm going to be speaking about, and this relates a little bit to what both Simon and Rolando were saying, um, Simon was talking about person-centered care. And unless we incorporate sex, which is biology, DNA, physiology, immunology, as well as gender, which are socio-cultural factors, um, we're really not practicing person-centered care. So, for example, um, and I should say that many of the studies that are published use the, the, use the term sex and gender interchangeably, and they are quite different. As I said, sex is biology, gender, sociocultural. So if I am using them interchangeably, I'm just citing the studies that, uh, that were published. Um, so, and often they use the binary. So they assume that someone is a woman or a girl or a man or a boy. But basically using those definitions, um, when we look at CKD prevalence, CKD is much higher worldwide in women compared to men, specifically stage 3A CKD. Um, and this may be due to the fact that women live longer, so there are more women in which to diagnose CKD, as well as how we calculate CKD. Um, we assume that there's no difference by sex in terms of uh, body surface area. And so it's possible we're, in quotations, over-diagnosing women. But even though women have a higher prevalence of CKD, there's actually faster loss of kidney function in men compared to women. This is probably due to a combination of both sex and gender. So sex, there are some important uh, sex-based differences in kidney biology and function. So for example, uh, testosterone uh, is associated with increased renin-angiotensin system activity. There are sex differences in salt sensitivity as well as proximal tubular function. Um, 
Uh, and so that's possible. It's also been shown that women, uh, independent of sex, which is gender identity, are more likely to go to the doctor, follow a kidney friendly diet, take their medications, uh, ensure that their blood pressure is controlled. And so men have be, probably because of a confluence of these uh, sex and gender differences, uh, men are more likely to have faster loss of kidney function. But when we get to choice of whether we are to initiate renal replacement or kidney replacement therapy, men are much more likely to say, yes, I will initiate dialysis. Now, whether that's a provider as a nephrologist or the nephrology team, we're offering it more to one group versus the other, or it's the patient who decides this is what they want. We know that men are more likely to initiate dialysis and women are more likely to choose conservative care. Um, we know that men uh, in the pre-dialysis stage are more likely to die as a consequence of their kidney disease, uh, like mostly due to cardiovascular disease, uh, and women are less likely. But once we hit dialysis, and if we have a woman and a man both on dialysis, that mortality difference is gone. So any relative, I'll say use the word advantage that a woman had before dialysis is lost. So what... and when we look at the dialysis population and mortality, uh, it actually, I say it's even between women and men. It's actually quite different when we look at it by age. And so I, I quote many people. So uh, for example, Dr. Carrero um, at the Karolinski Institute has looked at, uh, this is European data, uh, and looked at people who have initiated both hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis, uh, nine countries, and found that looking at women and men under the age of 45, women are more likely to die on dialysis over the age of 45, and actually not of cardiovascular disease, but non-cardiovascular disease. So malignancy or infection, um, perhaps it's a reflection of women are more likely to have autoimmune diseases, to be on immunosuppression. They're more likely to have a catheter uh, than a fistula. Um, we know that uh, they don't go for uh, women or females, I should say, don't go for pap smears, so cervical cancer, those types of things, those get lost in young women on dialysis. Conversely, if we look at the population on dialysis uh, over the age of 45, men are more likely to die on dialysis. And this is um, usually due to cardiovascular causes. Um, and so it's just an important, you know, when we report our data, we report it on mass that uh, as a group, and we don't stratify uh, typically by sex. So that's your sex assigned at birth. What does it say on your birth certificate? That's how uh, it's appropriate to ask a person. Um, and as well as what is their current gender identity? And I should mention actually that today is the International Transgender Day of Visibility, um, just to highlight that a, there is a significant proportion of the population who does not fit into that binary. Um, and just moving on, I, I talked about pre-dialysis, I talked about dialysis, I'd just like to talk briefly about transplant. So when we look at global data, um, we know that, and again, it's very different across countries, et cetera. So please take everything I say with a grain of salt. And I recognize I'm talking to some nephrologists and they've said salt. Um, so when we talk about uh, access to transplant, so men are more likely worldwide to receive a transplant than do women. And it's easy to look at that data and think that's not fair. Um, but 
this is where it's important to take into account sex and gender. So I, I just told you that men are more likely to choose dialysis. There are actually more men on dialysis than women. So there are more men who are looking for a kidney uh, than are women. Um, we also know that due to biological uh, reasons, so for example, pregnancy, women are more likely to have be sensitized and will have higher PRA. So while they might be on the transplant list, they just might not be eligible to receive that uh, kidney. So, uh, and that's for purely biological reasons. When we look at who donates kidneys, we see that so in the deceased donor uh, population, men or more, young men specifically are more likely to be deceased donors. And this is felt to be due to activities. Um, young men are more likely to engage in high risk activities that like, so um, that motor vehicle collisions, et cetera, that can result in donating a deceased, uh, being a deceased donor. Um, it's not that women don't sign up to be a deceased donor, but they're more likely to die of a a stroke or other cerebral vascular disease. And so their kidneys might not be suitable. But when we look at the living donor population, uh, women are disproportionate compared to men, more likely to donate. Um, again, uh, this is likely due to gender. Um, mothers are more likely to donate than fathers. Wives are more likely to donate than husbands. Um, and, and so, and this is felt to be partly just due to gendered reasons. And there have been studied looking at this where mothers feel external pressure that they're supposed to take care of people. Um, and also in many households, um, there is a big um, financial hit when someone donates a kidney. Uh, and, I, and this is a worldwide phenomenon. So if you are the primary breadwinner in your household, uh, and that often is the father or the husband, then it is actually, you cannot be the one to donate um, the kidney because, not because you don't want to, but it actually just makes more sense as a household for the wife, the mother to donate. So uh, it's just important. So I guess what I'm trying to get through in my talk is that we have this, sex and gender blind, uh, our KDGO guidelines, et cetera. And we don't take these factors into account. Um, and so I really want to go back to what Simon was saying, that the person-centered approach, he's talking about perineal dialysis. I realize that specifically, but really in everything we do, um, the complications of kidney disease, anemia, and the general population, we have sex-specific sex uh, targets in our CKD population. We don't. Um, and there have been studies that show for a lower hemoglobin, women with kidney disease have higher doses of erythropoietin uh, stimulating agents. So that just tells us that there's, why is it that female biology and male biology respond differently to the same medication? Sophia, do you, do you feel that the way that uh, women are feeling the, bur the burdens of kidney disease and the way they are reporting it, it it's, mm -hmm. it's in part uh, behind this differences that you see, for instance, this very interesting finding that you described about the difference in dialysis initiation? Mm -hmm. um, so there is a whole literature on that, uh, Roberto, that why, um, 
So why is there a difference in dialysis initiation? Uh, some of it is, uh, and I should mention, many of the studies have looked at dialysis as a whole. There are actually differences in initiation of hemodialysis versus initiation of peritoneal dialysis. So for example, in the United States, there's a recent study that over, and PD is not very common in the US, but they looked at who, gender differences in who initiates PD. And women are actually, uh, of those who initiate PD, women are more likely to initiate PD as a group uh, compared to men in the US. But when we, this differs by age, when we look at older women and women who have more comorbidities, they are less likely to initiate PD. And so I think this has to do with, uh, sorry, not just me, but others uh, who have studied this, have looked at, um, you know, what are the response of caregiving responsibilities? Um, what are, you know, women, and I use this as a as an umbrella term, don't want to be a burden on their families. And so they don't see themselves traveling to hemodialysis three times a week. Um, and so if that's the choice, then they'll stay home versus men. And they're actually, it's been shown that men who have partners do much better on hemodialysis than men without partners. Um, so I think there's some patient factors. I think there's some provider factors. We know that we actually initiate women at lower levels of GFR on dialysis than do men, than compared to our men patients. Um, we know that women on dialysis actually feel worse and have worse quality of life compared to men. And is it possible we're actually under dialyzing women at least on hemodialysis. When we look at the hemo study published in 2002, and they did a subgroup analysis or stratified analysis looking at men versus women, there's actually a 19% improvement in survival in the women patients uh, with more dialysis, a higher KT over V. And so that has prompted some studies to think, you know, are we under dialyzing women. I mean, we use the same equation to calculate volume of distribution in females and males. We don't take into account differences in, um, we know there's differences in water distribution between the sexes, but we don't take that into consideration. So, so uh, Roberto, I've uh, answered your question with, mul I think it's a multiple uh, factor issue. Um, yeah. Sophia, Thanks, quick, Sophia, quick question on uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. You are uh, actually uh, the lead for the CV and Me program in uh, the uh, Leibniz University. Uh, what, what about cardiovascular disease in women? So uh, that's a great question, Arvind. So uh, there's actually a study um, that was published in BMJ in 2013, uh, Dr. Nitsch, that looked at over 2 million, it's a consortium of over 2 million patients uh, from, I want to say, 32 different studies, so a meta-analysis. And they found that as kidney disease declined, uh, obviously we all know that there's an increase in cardiovascular risk. So they found that overall in the pre-dialysis population, um, men, were more likely to die of cardiovascular disease compared to women. So CKD was a bigger risk factor in men, but the slope of the association, so as kidney function got worse, the association, the risk of, C, uh, C, the role that CKD played in cardiovascular disease became much bigger in women. So the slope of the association changes considerably. 
Um, in the dialysis population, um, as I said, young men are more likely to die of cardiovascular disease compared to young women. And then it flips in the older uh, age groups. Um, there is, we, there's a lot of sex-based differences. Uh, so menopause, for example, in the general population, we know that that is associated with a significant increase in cardiovascular risk in, in those with female biology. We, have, we know that our CKD population have early menopause due to uh, kidney-related hypothalamic uh, pituitary gonadal uh, dysfunction. Do, is that why our older women with uh, CKD have higher cardiovascular risk? We don't know. <laughs> um, so I guess the, the short answer is we haven't taken into account sex differences, uh, let alone gender differences, actually going to the doctor, adherence to medication, et cetera, in our populations. Uh, we know that uh, cardiovascular disease is a huge problem in our uh, population, and we haven't as yet developed a uh, a precision approach, a person-centered approach that takes into account sex and gender to minimize that risk. Well, the, the last, last uh, uh, area we wanted to cover today um, is it's so central on uh, ISN's mission and has to do with the building capacity activities um, that um, that the ISN and different initiatives uh, deal with, and, and particularly uh, the big challenges of doing so in low resource settings. Uh, Dr. Adu is going to talk about it during the WCN in the coming weeks. And uh, Dr. Adu, how are you going to tell us the story? Thank you very much, Roberto, and thanks for the invitation. So this goes back to 2010, when the African Society of Human Genetics, um, together with the National Institutes of Health and the Wellcome Trust, decided that Africa was being left behind in the genomic um, revolution that was sweeping the world around that time. The whole genome, human genome had been sequenced, and there were very few studies coming out of Africa, which is actually the origin of humankind. So they set up H3Africa, that's human heredity and health in Africa. And that funded is now upwards of 100 projects. And we put in an application, um, call ourselves the H3Africa Kidney Disease Research Network. And obviously of interest to nephrologists, chronic kidney disease is much more common in African Americans and probably in Africans as compared with European Americans. And in Africa, studies that have been done show a prevalence of chronic kidney disease of 14%, which granted that the 1.2 billion um, Africans is an awful lot of people. And also that Africans develop end-stage kidney failure at an earlier age than um, reported from Europe and North America, and that there's an, a lack of facilities to treat um, chronic kidney disease. Now, part of the reason why Africans and people of African origin have an increased risk of chronic kidney disease is because Africans have inherited variants in a gene called apolipoprotein L1, and these variants developed about 10,000 years ago 
to provide protection against fatal sleeping sickness or trypanosomiasis. And so therefore the proportion of individuals with this variance rose to a high um, proportion in Africa. And so these variants have a good side. They protected our ancestors from dying from chronic kidney, chronic kidney disease, but they, sorry, from trypanosomiasis, but they increased the risk of chronic kidney disease. Now the A3Africa Kidney Disease Research Network is investigating the genetics of chronic kidney disease in Africans and looking at the progression factors leading to progression. And I think the key thing is that we have set up a network that comprises 16 academic medical centers in five African countries. And in addition, we are liaising with centers in North America and in Israel. And one of the key elements that we have been um, keen to develop is firstly training. So we've had training for research nurses, clinicians, um, genomic scientists. Um, to, we've developed two genomic laboratories in Ghana and Nigeria. And then the second thing that we've been really very keen to develop is community engagement so that we have ethical genomic research. Because for many years, there's so-called parachute research where people come in, collect 5,000 samples and then leave. And so we spent a lot of time talking with our communities, find, telling them about genomic research, what it might do, and getting their views, firstly about the whole idea of genomic research, but also whether they wanted feedback of findings from our research. We then also work with the ethics committees in these African five African countries to explain what genomic research was and what we were trying um, to do. Um, and in, as part of the training, we've also done training in epidemiology as well as in just um, pure genetic studies. And I think over the last eight years, we've been able to recruit 12,000 subjects in these African countries who've taken part in um, our research projects. Um, we've been able to genotype now, uh, as I'm talking, some 8,000 subjects. We have identified that um, in Ghana and Nigeria, possessing two APOL1 high-risk alleles increases the risk of developing chronic kidney disease by about 30%. And I think quite strikingly, one in four Ghanaians and Nigerians carry two APOL1 renal risk alleles. And again, as an interesting aside, these alleles are only found in Africans and in people of African origin. So they're also found in African-Americans because the variants developed 10,000 years ago, that's after the out of Africa and migration, which would be about 80, 90,000 years. And I think as we go along, so at the moment we're trying to understand and the mechanisms of disease. We're trying to understand progression 
of chronic kidney disease interaction with HIV infection, hepatitis B infection, hepatitis C infection. And I think the next stage will be for us to then start looking at therapies that might um, be effective in reducing the progression of chronic kidney disease in African Africans. Right. Dr. Ado, I just wanted to ask you, you were mentioning about Nigeria and Ghana, the APOL1 polymorphism. Is it different in different countries or is it the same? Again, that's a very good question. So the apolipoprotein L1 variants across Africa is the same variants. Um, they're called G1 and G2. Um, but the prevalence differs. So they're much more common in West Africa and Ghana and Nigeria, and they're much less common in East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, and also Central South Africa, and they're absent in Ethiopia. So the prevalence of these variants differs very substantially across Africa, but they're the same variants. And even within one country, for example, Nigeria, one ethnic group, the Igbo is 42%, have two APOL1 high-risk variants, whereas the house of Fulani in the north, only 12% have these variants. So those they evolved, and there's good evidence, evolved to provide protection against trypanosomiasis. There's still quite a lot that we don't understand that you know, there may be other diseases they protect against, or there may have been patterns of migration in Africa that we completely don't understand. Thank you, Dr. Adu. Uh, my thanks to all the speakers who spared their time and shared their uh, uh, what they're going to speak on at the WCN with us. Uh, very important information uh, that they gave us and the fact that those listening to this podcast, I would ask you to actually come over and attend the virtual WCN and listen to these speakers. Uh, give out their thoughts and enrich our own sort of thoughts on how to move forward in the field of nephrology. Uh, I would like to tell you, uh, attend the WCN, attend the curtain raiser sessions before the WCN, which is actually going to be free and uh, people can attend even if they're not registered, so you can come through. Uh, these sessions will also be available on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, it is now my pleasure again to thank you all for attending this podcast. Thank you, Roberto, for having me on as a co-host. Thank you and bye-bye. I then would like to acknowledge Trevere for their support of this special WCN 21 series of the ISN Global Kidney Care Podcast.